This is Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NEETEC, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Welcome to Transmission Interrupted from NEETEC. Hello, and welcome to Transmission Interrupted. My name is Jill Morgan. I'm a nurse here at Emory University Hospital in Atlanta. For those of you not yet familiar with NETEC, our mission is to set the gold standard for special pathogen preparedness and response across health systems in the U.S. with the goals of driving best practices, closing knowledge gaps, and developing innovative resources. NETEC works alongside and in cooperation with the CDC and is funded by ASPR, the Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response. We're here today to talk about PPE breaches. So I'm really excited about this, as anybody who's heard me before knows that I am an enthusiastic supporter of PPE for healthcare workers. And today I'm joined by a group of amazing professionals from across the country. So uh, I first want to introduce Brooke Henriksen. She is the co-lead for NETEC PPE Working Group. Brooke comes to us from Providence Sacred Heart in Spokane, Washington. Thanks, Brooke, for being here. Good morning, Jill. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to get this going. This is going to be fun. Excellent. Well, we are joined by some other colleagues from across the country. So moving just slightly south from Spokane, we'll get to Jennifer Kuzalina from Cedars-Sinai. Jen, glad you're here. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Moving across the country, next is Adam Sorensen from Denver Health. Hi, Joe. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And last, but certainly not least, Meredith Fahey from Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Meredith, thanks for being here. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. All right. So let's first start with what is a PPE breach? I mean, I think of a breach as being something that happens to a levy or a dam, but what is a PPE breach and why do I care? Well, Jill, I think of breaches in kind of two separate buckets. I think of either a problem or a tear in a PPE, or I think of contamination on the PPE. So for me, it's kind of two different things that you talk about and you think about as far as what do you need to do to keep yourself safe so that you're not exposed to that pathogen that you're trying to protect yourself from. Yeah, because, right, I mean, we're wearing PPE for some reason, right? We're trying to keep something, whether that's something we inhale or something we would touch, come in contact with from either skin, clothing, mucous membranes, right? So anything that makes a hole in that, whether that's just a, a defect in a piece of equipment or whether that's something that happens to it, like it gets a cut or a tear, any of those things then can make a gap through which pathogens could, in theory at least, travel or or contaminate us. Other ideas on how maybe facilities specifically people define breach, like if you're making a protocol? Well, I think for us at our facility, we also look at both of those events as really opportunities to, to manage contamination and exposure to potential pathogens. I think that we traditionally think of breaches as an actual break in PPE or, you know, a gap between like a a gown and a glove. But yeah, we do also look at how do we manage contamination so that we keep our healthcare workers safer. And, And a lot of times managing it 
can be the, the same way, whether it's contamination or an actual breach. Excellent. Well, I think we should start today maybe with, uh, to me, a piece of PPE that pretty much everybody's familiar with, and that's gloves, right? So most of us in healthcare don't go five minutes into our day without putting on a pair of gloves. So I know that we're going to eventually talk a little bit more about sort of the special pathogens and parts of those sort of more complex PPE ensembles. But let's just talk about everyday use. And for our folks that maybe aren't in a biocontainment unit, when you're just putting on a pair of gloves or doing patient care, what are some of the things that can go wrong with your gloves? And then what do I need to be thinking about if I'm the one who then has a hole or notices a hole after I've had my hands in something questionable? I think that's a, a great thought, Jill. I, and one thing I don't think we can express enough is the importance of hand hygiene. So when we put on our gloves, even if it's not in the biocontainment unit, it's hand hygiene, then you put on your pair of gloves. And just like when you take them off, you take them off and then you hand hygiene. So I think it all starts with that so that you're going in with your PPE being clean. And then there's times I look at the job when I was bedside, I would look at the job that I needed to do. And it's like, okay, is this a really big cleanup? And I may need two pairs of gloves because if I get partway through it and I've got something on my hands and I physically can't leave the patient, maybe I just need a second pair of gloves on that I can doff my dirty pair, continue on with my clean pair while I'm right there at the bedside. So I guess for me, it's thinking about what you need to do at the bedside and trying to be prepared for that so that you don't have the stop and go action in the task that you're trying to do. Brooke, I think that's a really important point to be thinking about what's your action, you know, using standard precautions like treating all blood and body fluids and as if they're potentially infectious and what sort of actions and interactions are you going to be having with, you know, the patient's potential blood and body fluids when you're doing um, your care activities. So it's, it's definitely important to be thinking about what you're doing. But I think it's also important to think about ourselves and what we're bringing to the table. And what I mean by that is what are we wearing, right? Do we have lab coats and jackets and stethoscopes and all these additional things that we're going to be wearing under our PPE? that could potentially lead to a breach. Like if we're wearing something that could cause a tear or if we have a really bulky jacket and we can't tie our gown properly and that could lead to a potential breach. So I think it's important that we're also thinking about ourselves and, and what we're bringing to the table before we even put our PPE on. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And in addition to what you're saying, those things can be distractors too and can distract us. You know, if, if something is uncomfortable and we can't move the way that we normally do, then we're kind of taking our attention away from our task at hand. And to add to that, having gloves that actually fit. I, I've seen multiple times where healthcare workers are working with gloves that are too big and then they're rolling down and possibly exposing their wrists, or it's just harder to manipulate during that task that you're performing. And then you're also kind of acting in a way that you don't normally act, which puts you at risk for contamination or a breach. Jen, that's such a good point. And I think wearing the gloves that fit you is so important because on the flip side of wearing a glove that's too big, if you're wearing something that's too small, obviously it could tear more easily. And like you say, you're not able to manipulate your hand like you normally would, which could certainly put healthcare professionals at risk of breach when they're doing their, their work. Yeah. And to speak to uh, Jen and Brooke, your point as well, it's, we all know how busy things can get and you do your hand hygiene prior to putting on your gloves and then your gloves stick, they get wrinkled. 
And that also can create a issue with the gloves themselves or the integrity of them. They can rip easier, things like that. And then this, the second point, when you take your gloves off, or if you do have a tear in your gloves is that mitigation of hand hygiene, and then you can assess. I want to sort of build off that, Adam. I think all of us have had the experience when you're trying to put on a new glove, right? Maybe I'm just walking in the room. I know I'm always in a hurry. So, you know, I was trying to do things fast. So I put my fingers through and I have a hole in a glove. Well, that's one thing, right? That's a that's something that very easily I can explain to people, just get a new glove, right? Nobody'd go into the room, I hope, with a glove that's that's got a hole in a finger. But thinking about how when I talk to staff members, when I when I train people about PPE, what should I be telling them when they might either cause a hole in a glove, find a hole in a glove when they're in the middle of something. Brooke was talking about doing a cleanup. I'm reaching, I'm grabbing things, and then suddenly, whether it's a piece of tape or the corner of something, my glove is no longer intact. Can you walk us through sort of, and and I'm thinking about like, how do you teach a risk assessment? How do you talk about mitigation? Like, what should be people be thinking about in that situation? Well, I think it's dependent on a couple factors. So firstly, I think you would wonder where is the tear in the glove, right? If it's something that's noted on the cuff of the glove and your hand isn't exposed or you don't have exposed skin, there's no contamination. You might be able to simply just, you know, doff that pair of gloves, perform pan hygiene and don a new clean pair of gloves. If it's a situation where you had visible contamination on your hands, of course, you're doffing your gloves, you're performing hand hygiene by washing your hands with soap and water to remove any contamination, assessing for injury. If you didn't have an injury, maybe you're able to then replace your gloves and continue working. But if you get to a point where you have a breach and and you've done your hand hygiene and you've realized you have a puncture in your skin, your first steps are you're going to be doing immediate first aid, washing the affected area with soap and water. Maybe you need to redon a, a clean pair of gloves to doff the remainder of your PPE. And then in our facility, the next step would be to contact occupational health and safety to review the exposure event and next steps. I'm so glad you brought up the washing. We've gotten so used to having alcohol-based hand sanitizer everywhere that sometimes people forget, I need to actually wash because an alcohol-based hand sanitizer is really good at killing an awful lot of our pathogens, but they're not going to take them off your skin. And so that's a situation where we really want people to go ahead and wash it away. Then alcohol-based hand rubs are great for the rest of these steps. But if I have a risk of having something icky on my skin, I want to do a real wash instead of just a, a hand rub. I agree. And I think the one thing that Meredith brought up was how you're going to take off your gloves and what you're going to do with them in the case of a breach is also dependent on what you're dealing with. If you're in the middle of a lab draw and you're dealing with blood and you've got a breach and a possible needle stick, that's a very different situation than if you're in a cleanup and you just have a little smudge of something on the back of your hand on the glove. So I think mitigating, understanding those risks and mitigating them so that you can keep yourself and your coworker safe if you're the one that's watching or helping the cleanup or helping the lab draw or whatever the situation is. I think really just looking at the situation and looking at the potential risks involved, depending on what contamination you're exposed to. Yeah. 
And I know we talked about double gloving at the very start, but I, I want to circle back to that as well. Jen and Adam, when you think about having people wear two pairs of gloves or under what circumstances somebody might be wearing two pair of gloves, I know in most of our biocontainment units, that's a regular thing. And then in most patient care outside of biocontainment units, we might think about putting on double gloves for especially dirty procedures or when you know there's a, a dirty step to be taken maybe before a clean. Can you kind of walk us through a little bit about I don't want to sound like I'm telling everybody to wear double gloves all the time. And yet, you know, I don't want to end up with stuff on my skin. So kind of walk us through those decisions. And then are there other things we should be thinking about when we're double gloved? The way that I talk to healthcare workers about double gloving is that aside from a situation where you are dealing with a high consequence infectious disease, it's really never required. It's more about how is how is that going to help you? So I know with nurses and with nurse assistants or clinical partners, they're using their hands a lot, whether it's bathing or helping a, a patient use the toilet, things like that, where their hands are likely to become either very wet or very contaminated. And when you're dealing with a patient and you don't want to leave their side to go doff a pair of gloves, wash your hands, put on a new pair where that might not be safe for the patient, it might be a good idea to wear double gloves so you can easily just remove the upper pair. One thing that I also try to address when I talk about those things too is the importance of working from clean to dirty so that you're not contaminating. Like you would never want to empty a patient's urinal and then go ahead and access their IV lines with that same pair of gloves. So while that's not always possible, you know, when it's not possible to do it that way, to just reemphasize just because you're wearing two pairs of gloves doesn't mean you take off the outer pair and then continue to your clean task with the with the underneath pair. I would recommend removing both pairs, performing hand hygiene, putting on a new pair to then perform something clean. And, you know, we think that that is kind of common sense, but it's not always, you know, we've, we've done some observations where we've, we've seen people working in the wrong order, performing tasks. And so, it's easy to get caught up in our tasks at the bedside. And so I, I always think that that's an important reminder too. Yeah, Jen, another example that depending on where you work, you might do this a little more frequently, but in a lot of the ICUs when you're doing full care with patients or if the patient's unable to do basic hygiene for themselves and you're having to turn them and clean up, say, a bowel movement or something like that. And it's going to be a little bit of a longer process, a little bit of a larger um, cleanup and cleanup duties. That's frequently where a lot of healthcare workers will also have more than one pair of gloves to, again, keep surrounding areas that are clean, clean and not spread the contamination or, or spread um, whatever they are cleaning up. We actually take the approach where we don't recommend double gloving for routine patient care. I think to the reasons Jen pointed that if um, staff are doing different tasks, we focus on the clean to dirty. If their gloves are contaminated and they need to change them, we would recommend you know removing their, or doffing their gloves, hand hygiene, and donning new clean gloves. So I think it's just a different approach that we take, and there's no wrong answer, I would say, but just wanted to share that that's the way that we just approach things a little bit differently. Yeah. And I think certainly, you know, we all know that there are some ideals. Ideally, you'd be able to step away, do hand hygiene and put on another pair of gloves. But I think as, as you guys have already pointed out, 
there are so many times when you might be the lone caregiver. You're also maybe have a patient in an unsafe position. You know, you can't really let go of them or step away. And so those practicalities sometimes can make these things maybe something that a staff member would want to choose. I just wanted to mention something that we do look for, especially in higher risk environments, which is having an outer pair and an inner pair that are different colors. So that if I do have one of those holes in an outer glove, it's really, really clear to see, you know, if my gloves are two different colors that I can pick up that visual cue, maybe even before I've noticed it when I'm doing a a procedure. Just one point to add, Jill, if you don't mind, that just in what you were saying about the the different color gloves is so important for breach identification. But I also think it's really helpful during doffing so that folks can really visualize when they're removing first or outer gloves when they're going through the doffing process in the myocontainment unit. So I think that's another really important reason for the two different colored gloves. I agree. You're right. I think that does make it very clear where they are and what they still have on. Yeah, good point. So I think the second most common form of PPE, maybe respiratory protection aside, it seems like gowns are probably the next thing that folks use just on a regular basis. And frankly, that from a reliability standpoint, may have some breach potential. So let's just talk about, Brooke, first of all, like when you think about a breach to a gown, kind of run through some of the scenarios for us of of what a gown breach is. I think my first thought is, because it comes from personal experience, is having a level of gown on that was not adequate for the job I was doing. And I think that starts with understanding the different levels of gowns. And the difference between a level two gown, which is going to give you a little bit of fluid resistance, but not a lot, and a level four gown, which is going to give you the best fluid resistance you can have and also some some bacterial and blood fluid resistance as well. So I think for me personally, my first breach actually happened as I was helping hold a patient and I didn't realize that the gown I had on, which by the way, in the moment was the only gown I had access to, to go into the room, was not adequate to be exposed to the amount of body fluids that it was going to be exposed to. So I took off that gown and realized I had blood all down my forearms. And it was just one of those moments. It's like, oh my gosh, I had no, in the moment, I just didn't think about the different levels and what I was going to be doing. So I think that's my first experience of breach. And I think that's one thing for all healthcare workers, if they could understand, knowing roughly what you're going to have to do when you go in the room and giving yourself the appropriate PPE to protect yourself while you're in there doing it. Excellent. And I want to just step back and explain to folks that, and please, Jen, Mary, and Adam, fill in if I've missed any of these important points about this. But what Brooke's referring to are four levels of gowns that is a standard for resistance to fluids. Levels one, two, and three have an escalating amount of pressure of those fluids that they're resistant to. And then a level four gown is actually tested against blood and body fluid surrogates. So we're talking about like viral size pathogens that might go through there. So that's called the F1670-1671 test. And that standard is actually by AAMI. So that's an organization that creates standards for things like surgical gowns. 
many of you may be using an isolation gown that is unrated. So a lot of the sort of papery isolation gowns, definitely useful, meant for keeping your clothing protected from dry, like fomite kind of stuff, but not appropriate for anything wet. So Jen, Mary, Adam, fill in any parts of that or expound on that a little bit if you want to make that clear. I'm so glad that that we're talking about this because when you think about what's happening throughout, like let's say you're, you know, you're in a hospital setting, a gown that might be appropriate for patient care on a med surge unit might not be the same type of gown that you should be stocking in your trauma rooms, let's say. And so I don't think that a lot of healthcare workers know about those differences. I think they assume, you know, an isolation gown is an isolation gown, and maybe they'll wear two, or maybe they'll wear, you know, a thicker gown, but just kind of thinking like this might offer me better protection. But if healthcare workers aren't aware of that, I think that definitely, you know, those who are doing our purchasing throughout the hospital are not aware of it. And, you know, that might be something that is going to need to be vetted out. And should we be purchasing a different level of gown for certain areas? Um, and that's going to be different for you know a lot of different places. You'll have to do a, a risk assessment on the environment and determine, is it feasible? Is it is this beneficial for healthcare workers? Excellent. Thank you. That standard I was referring to is the PB70. That's actually the standard number that covers this penetration of fluids through a, a textile. And I want to mention real quickly, because Jen brought it up here, is this difference between a surgical gown and an isolation gown. So the standard is the same, but what parts of the gown that standard applies to is actually a little different. And so some of y'all who might be used to looking at the packaging of your surgical gown, there's typically like a little picture of the gown and they might have some darker colors where they identify the critical zones. So you can imagine this was designed for operating rooms and, and places where people were needing to keep sterile, but might be exposed to a lot of fluids. And so surgical gowns are tested in those critical zones. And in theory, an isolation gown has the same level of protection all the way around. So all the way down the back, the sleeves, everywhere is the same level. So that's just a little bit of detail about that gown standard that I certainly didn't know pre-Ebola. I don't feel like I got any education about that initially in my career. Well, Jill, you brought up the back of the gown, which I think is a good, a good point because we nurses are constantly moving in the room and they're zipping around, getting all of their tasks completed and trying to be efficient as we can. But I think in the middle of that, I don't know how many times I've gotten my, the back of my gown or the tie of my gown caught on a doorknob or part of the IV pole or something, and then it's torn. And if you're really actively working, your gown starts to come off. Or if you don't get it tied or the Velcro doesn't attach really well behind your shoulders, then it's coming off your shoulders. So I think of those as opportunities for A, improvement on my own practice, but B, that's a potential breach waiting to happen. Absolutely. I would say that I see people throw on a gown because they're going to do something quick in the room. They don't bother tying it. They don't, may not even put it over their head if it's an isolation gown. And it's just sort of draping in front of them. You think, oh, honey, you know, that would be the <laughs> Southernism for it. Oh, honey, what, what are you thinking? Yeah, they're like glorified arm covers at that point. <laughs> yeah. Covering up exactly. your elbow. You know, another thing about gowns that I think is important, especially as 
we're kind of in our recovery phase here from the COVID-19 pandemic is that a lot of us were sourcing PPE from wherever we could get it and not, you know, realizing that it might not be the same level of gown that we've gotten before, or there might be other elements of it. Like I know from our experience, we went to washable gowns at some point because of the PPE shortages. And a lot of those washable gowns will have that that fabric cuff. And unless that cuff is completely covered, that's another, you know, it's essentially like, you know, having bare skin almost, you know, if that gets wet, it's going to go right through to your skin. And so the gloves that we're using, while they might be adequate to cover our previous isolation gown, um, they might not cover that cuff. And so that's a potential area of, of exposure. So um, I know we've probably all still got some stuff that we've you know sourced during the pandemic. And so it might be a good time to reevaluate what you have and is it still a good option for you? Yeah, excellent points. So it sounds like a breach for a gown. So I certainly have the situations Brooke was talking about, right? I catch the ties on something. It comes untied by accident. Maybe it rips or tears. And certainly some of the paper gowns, of course, don't have any give to them. So if you are in a situation where you're leaning or, or, or stooping and, or moving a patient physically, you might have a tear in a gown. It's much easier with gloves for me to wash my hands, right, in case I got something or I had a hole. But now I've got this hole in my gown. It's much more difficult for me to assess whether there's any contamination on my clothing. I may not even be able to see the back of me or see contamination or even wetness sometimes, frankly, on dark scrubs. So how are you training people to think about the risk assessment and mitigation steps in those situations? Yeah, Jill, that's a great question. We We've drilled a couple times on that. And if we have a tear in our PPE or in our gown, what we're going to do is we're going to check with our team members in our biocontainment unit. Did anybody see the tear happen in that gown? If they did, was it during or was any patient care done when that tear occurred or after the tear occurred? Because if you're just walking in the room and you catch it on the door or something and the PPE tears, or your gown tears that, you're going to dress that differently than if you're doing patient care and you have a risk of contamination along with that tear or uh, integrity issue in your PPE. So what we do, and this it's actually really hard, but not, not extremely difficult, but the full assessment of the person wearing the gown is, can you tell if did it tear your scrubs too? Can you feel wetness, like there's blood or something? that went through um, the gown. And then what we drill on is we clean kind of like a central line. So we're going to clean around where that terror in PPE is. One wipe with one EPA regular wipe, throw that away, keep doing that, and try not to push any potential contamination on the gown into that terror and gown. And then we always say the wearer, it's up to them on next steps of can they, do they need to get out the PPE right away or can they go ahead and do one more step or something like that? So it's kind of based off of them, but the, our recommendation is always to clean the area without pushing into the tear and then get out of your PPE. 
and go from there. And then we have our trained observer watching them, pointing out, giving visual cues to remind them or show them, be careful. Excellent. Yep. That's a lot to think about, especially like in a biocontainment unit or and it may not be in your biocontainment unit. Maybe it's when a member of your trauma team or maybe it's, you know, somebody taking care of a C. diff patient or any of the other icky things we don't want on our clothing or our skin. Yeah, Adam brought up the one wipe, one swipe is what we call it. And we do the same thing. Try to get the visible contamination off without pushing it through if there is a breach or a, something wrong with the integrity. But again, look at that wipe on its way to the garbage. And if it's dirty or if there's something on it, you need another wipe. So another one wipe, one swipe until that comes off clean. All right, I'm going to be devil's advocate here. Can I wipe and swipe on most surgical gowns? Surgical gowns do have, it depends on where, right? And it depends on the type of gown. So that's a, that's a big question to unpack. Isolation gowns, especially like the level one or two, I would be cautious about wiping because you're going to most likely push that contaminant right through the gown. So I would be more inclined on those lower level gowns to doff them. And then if there is something below that level on your own scrubs or on your own whatever, I would address that. And that may be you're changing into hospital scrubs, or it may be you are wiping that down. But the surgical gowns, I do think you could make an argument for, depending on where it is, you could wipe that down, at least to decrease some of the contamination. And the same thing for the level four gowns. I think you could wipe them down also to decrease some contamination before you doff. All right, I'm anxious to hear what Meredith has to say about that. And and then I'll, no surprise here, I'm going to give tell you what I think about it. So Meredith, go ahead. So we have explicit instructions in our biocontainment unit PPE exposure protocols where we do describe the one wipe, one swipe using an EPA approved wipe to um, remove visible contamination that may be on the coveralls or other articles of PPE. I think that I want to tread lightly here on the idea of wiping because, and this just goes back to the standards, right? That while these are tested against fluid being essentially sprayed at it, that's not the same from a physics standpoint, right? As, as what you might do if you were to press something through it. So I do think if you have something, oh, let's just be gross, right? If you have a glop of something, I want to get that glop of something off of there, but I don't want to try to press anything through. So I'm not really thinking about wiping my gown to clean it. I'm wiping my gown to remove something that could be aerosolized or, or, or transmitted when I'm taking it off. So it's really, to me, not cleaning it for the sake of making it clean. It's cleaning it to reduce the risk moving forward. Does that make sense? That is very well said, and thank you for clarifying that, because that is certainly what I was trying to allude to, but I did not say it well. <laughs> We've been talking about gowns, and, and I get it that for most uses across healthcare, of course, we're in gowns, but a lot of, a lot of people are using like a coverall, right? So the bunny suit or a one-piece coverall of some kind. And that, first of all, that standard is a little different as well, but the coveralls, if you're using them in biocontainment, are probably been tested to that F1670, 1671 standard for the materials. And then hopefully, in addition, not just the materials they're made out of, but also 
making sure that things like seams and zippers and all those places also have a, a some sort of bonding to them so that they're completely resistant to these sort of body fluid exposures. So maybe we'll spend a few minutes now talking about these other articles of PPE that we might use probably more in biocontainment than general patient care. I would say that we do explicitly describe wiping our coveralls in our biocontainment unit care. If there was visible contamination or if it was part of a potential breach or exposure, we do describe using the wipes in that setting. But in routine patient care, we would teach people more about doffing if their gals were that contaminated that they needed to take it off because it was too wet or there was gross contamination and they needed to, to doff the gown. That would be our recommendation. And then as Brooke has described, assessing the clothing underneath in your skin, is there anything there? And then addressing that if it were to be in the situation. Does anybody have like a personal experience with coveralls and a, and a tear? We have drilled it, but I have not had an experience in real life, but we have certainly drilled it where if there is a breach with a tear, currently, if you're in our biocontainment room and your coveralls get breached, we kind of assess the situation. First of all, is it a breach that looks to not be overtly contaminated? And by that meaning there's nothing visibly on your coveralls. You're going to assume that there's some level of contamination just because you're in a biocontainment room. So we would out of an abundance of caution, one wipe, one swipe. And we actually have tape in the room and we would tape that closed so that we could then immediately proceed to the doffing process without further exposing our inner PPE or our inner scrubs to that hole. So that's what we look at. And it's so, it's so tough. We can drop down so many rabbit holes where, well, what if this happens? And what if that happens? It's kind of mind boggling sometimes. If it's a dirty breach, I think that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother thing. If there's obvious contamination and it goes below the PPE. But I like that. That's really a great point. So there might be times when you need to make something safer to make it safer to doff. So that might be taping something so that you don't have more of your skin or clothing exposed. It might be putting on another glove to finish doffing if you've got one that's contaminated or has a hole in it. So I think we think about getting PPE off, but sometimes we don't think about adding something to make that doffing process safer. So that's, that's a great point. Thank you. What else, like other issues with coveralls specifically? I know they're difficult to don and doff safely under the best of circumstances, but when they have a breach, are there specific places that's likely to happen? We actually did have a breach during an exercise, was not part of the exercise, so we did just have to manage it in, in real time. And you know, the situation was a clean breach where the healthcare worker walked into the room and almost immediately caught the coverall, the shoulder of the coverall on an IV pole and it and it tore. And, you know, I think that you know, we did have tape in the room. And so she was able to wipe the breach, but really in an, the area where it, it had occurred. It wasn't really possible for her to completely see where she was wiping. And luckily, there were two other healthcare workers in the room. She happened to be a respiratory therapist. So there were a couple of people there to assist her. But I think that's something that you need to think about, too. If you're there by yourself, there are certain areas where if you've got a tear, 
you might not be able to really fully assess it on your own or clean it or cover it by yourself and you would need the assistance of another healthcare worker. And that's that's funny, Jen, because we had this same thing happen with Natech uh, site visit last year with a we we're doing a drill and we had a tear in PPE um, on the thigh of our gowns or coveralls and working through that process and a couple lessons we learned with doing that is it helps do it and work through that and drill because it's not easy given how your coveralls blow up or with the air from your pappers you're using. So it's not a hard surface that you're pushing on clean. So it takes a little bit more diligence as well as tactile feeling to clean around that tear in PPE. And then the other thing to think about too is where, as we addressed earlier, where is that tear? It can be difficult because you don't want to cross over to potentially your most contaminated portions of PPE. So just working with either your right or left hand and working through that process. Yeah, there's so much to a coverall. I think even more than a gown, we have these like redundant fabric folds, right? Because coverall sizing is not exactly, they don't come in many sizes. So if you're tall and thin, you might have a lot of redundant fabric one direction. And if you're kind of a short hippie person, you might have a lot more redundant fabric going the other direction. But all those fabric folds are not only places for contamination, but also that a breach might be really difficult to see, assess, and mitigate. So yeah, great points about that. And sorry about both y'all's drills ending up with uh, some, some at least good lessons, I think, for people about how hard that can be. Really, to me, that's just such an important point to get across. So a breach in PPE can be anywhere from no risk or nearly no risk and something we encounter all the time like putting on a glove and putting your finger right through it to being in a situation where you are in the middle of a dirty procedure or in a dirty room and you realize you've got a tear or a hole or a gap in your PPE ensemble. And that instantly raises the stress threshold, right? So that's stressful for staff members. And Having that experience that Jen and Adam had in their own facilities doing this as part of a drill, I think is really important because you need to be able to talk someone through what steps they need to take to help them remain calm, to help them minimize their exposure. And that can be a big deal, right? Is your patient in a safe space where you can walk away from them? Do you have to do more just to even get to where you could take that PPE off, right? Like if I'm holding a patient up or walking them to the bathroom, I can't just step away because I've got a hole. So it, it sounds to me like what we're doing is really helping staff walk through a risk assessment. Like where are the dangers to me? Where are the dangers to the patient? What are my resources? And I think one of those big resources, like we just said, is that trained observer, having somebody that can walk you through that. If you don't have that, do you have the ability to critically think about what your next step should be, really believing that your safety and the patient's safety are of equal and paramount importance? Jill, I want to reemphasize what you and Adam just said. Adam had mentioned that 
if you've got a breach on one side, you know, you don't want to be reaching across, you know, right to left because then you're crossing that area of, you know, where there's potential areas that could be most contaminated and you might be making things worse. And then you just mentioned critically thinking through the process and how to manage it. And I think there's a difference. I think it's helpful to go through scenarios and give people advice on, on what to do. But I also think that those concepts, we should, you know, just be re-emphasizing those concepts of infection control and, you know, not crossing over areas of, of more contamination so that not every scenario is we're going to be able to practice, right, beforehand. And so getting people to think through those scenarios before they actually happen. I think, you know, practicing is great and just like walking people through those scenarios and you know, talking out loud and talking about why this might be a good or bad approach and really fine-tuning those critical thinking skills when it comes to assessing a breach. Uh, Jen, I think that's so true. And I think it's really important to have that sort of that mind frame of risk, risk to ourselves, risk to our patients when these breaches occurs, could occur both, you know, during routine patient care, as well as in our biocontainment unit and really thinking about the PPE that we're wearing, where are the highest areas of bio burden? And then how are we going to doff our PPE safely? I'm sure we've all seen people just, and I've probably done this myself when I'm rushing, right? You just kind of grab and whip the gown off, not really following the proper technique to do that to prevent potential contamination actually during the doffing process. And I think that this trained observer is such an important role in our biocontainment unit because they really their only focus is to monitor the donning and doffing process, but to really slow staff down, make sure that they're doing things systematically, methodically to avoid potential contamination during the doffing process, reminding them to avoid those reflexive actions. Like when we remove our pepper and our hair is all crazy, it's fine. Your hair is fine. Don't touch it. Just keep moving through the doffing process. So I think as you're saying, framing this that discussion and teaching about doffing and, and PPE breaches and the such, um, thinking about the potential risk, I think is really important for all of our different uh, PPE articles and ensembles. Yeah, I agree. And I want to go back. Uh, something got mentioned briefly, and now I can't remember, maybe Brooke, it was you that mentioned like reaching and having that gap between your gown and glove. But I think that that also happens for a lot of our staff members who maybe PPE doesn't fit them the way we would wish it to. And so are people making do, right? So if I'm super tall, maybe my gown doesn't come down far enough, right, to cover the parts of me that lean on a bed. If I have a larger, let's just say other body parts, you know, my gown may not fit me and I may have more of a gap at the back, or I don't put it on completely and it's draping across my neck and shoulders. Maybe I'm not using some technique to keep it sort of anchored to my hand and I end up with a big gap between, you know, at my forearm or wrist. So making sure that your PPE is doing for you what you want it to do to start with is very important. So, you know, this really should be a little bit like a suit of armor we put on in order to do our jobs. And we want to keep those 
foes at bay. And for us, the foes are these things that are bloodborne pathogens or respiratory pathogens. We should never feel like we have to be exposed to someone else's blood or body fluids at work. I really love this conversation about PPB breaches, and I'm going to start to wrap it up here a little bit. And I want to start talking about what some of the takeaways are. So if you're a staff member, your takeaways from today, I would want them to be, let's just start talking about these, like your resources or mitigation. Like, what do you think you, the people y'all are training, what do you want them to take away from like an instruction about breach? For us, we do so much training and we have so much discussion around doffing PPE because that is our most critical time. It's our biggest risk of exposure is during the doffing process. But when we're teaching our our special pathogens team members, we're also saying, now take this back to your unit because you guys know PPE and are more familiar with PPE than the average healthcare worker. So slowing down, I think, is a really big thing, which is so hard because we are We've been in PPE now for two and a half years, solid. And I think we get a lot of complacency with doffing. And I think it was brought up already how, you know, you're just going to take the gown and you're going to grab it right at the middle and take it off and doff your gloves really quick. And maybe you fling them across the room to see if you can snap them into the garbage can without walking over (laughs) to the garbage can. (laughs) We've all seen that happen. So I think it's trying to get our coworkers outside of this biocontainment unit to slow down and think about taking off your PPE in a safe manner and then understanding the PPE that you're wearing and what level of protection is it providing you? Is it adequate for the job you're doing? And I know it's so easy for me to sit here and say that when I'm not the one that has to run into that room with a patient who needs help right this second. But I do think it's something that we can all just be more mindful of. I really agree with what Brooke had said. So I think it's so important that whether you are in a biocontainment unit or you're performing care at the bedside um, as part of your normal duties, understanding your PPE and also understanding modes of transmission and, you know, what PPE is appropriate for these tasks and why. I know that, you know, during COVID, there was a lot of fear and a lot of people say, well, why can't we wear those coveralls like we see on the news? And, you know, once they realize that taking off those coveralls in a safe manner takes about 20 minutes to really remove it safely, it's not really meant for in and out of the room care, right? And we don't know the, the, the purposes behind why these people on TV were wearing what they were wearing. But understanding, you know, modes of transmission and how your PPE is meant to protect you And then also understanding, again, like Brooke said, how to correctly manage it and take it off safely, because that's where we know that the the most likely time for contamination can occur. Yeah, and Jen, what you said earlier, I think is a big key in this, and that's everybody having uh, a working knowledge and using critical thinking. We wear PPE in all different areas of healthcare. And it's having the knowledge base of, do I need this level gown or am I going to be exposed to something that is going to be much more wet, um, blood, different type of pathogens. So I'm going to need to go up a higher level gown or select different gown that's available to me. So 
just having that working knowledge and, and providing that knowledge to not just biocontainment unit uh, workers, but to all healthcare workers so that they can be more empowered and be more safe with the patient care they're providing. Wow, I love, I love what Adam was just saying there. I really appreciate you mentioning empowerment and mentioning staff safety. You know, those are, are so important and that's really what PPE is all about. I, I'd like to summarize the takeaways for a staff member. And this is just the way my brain works to say, if I'm a staff member, what are my responsibilities, right? So, so on me is to know my PPE. Maybe that's something I haven't had to think about before, but I really want to look. What's in my supply closet? What do I have at my disposal if I need it? As Jen just said, really knowing what your modes of transmission are, like what do I need to be worried about? Uh, maybe I don't need a hair cover and shoe covers to walk in this room because that's not the way this is transmitted. And then for staff members to know what their resources are. So do you have alcohol-based hand sanitizer in the room? Do you have a sink and soap and water where you could wash your hands if, in fact, you had a, a contamination event? Do you have extra gloves in the room? Are they the size you would need? So if I want to do that swap in the room, I'm able to do that. Can I reach them from where I'm going to be working in that space? And do I want to maybe ask somebody to spot me in this situation because I'm doing something higher risk, whether that's a really complex wound dressing, whether that's trait care, whether that's uh, assisting with an LP or something else that I'm really sort of all up in there. And I want somebody else to keep an eye out for my safety. And then I think about a staff member needing to know, how do I do a risk assessment? What steps can I take to mitigate, right? So I'm thinking about, okay, I found a breach. What do I do? I found contamination. What do I do? And at least having an idea of what's safe to do and what's not safe to do, when they should do that careful doffing. Like, what do I need to do to safely extricate myself from this situation? When is that appropriate? So to me, like all of that falls under, and that's a pretty big lift, right, for staff members to think about all those things when they think about breaches. And to me, one of our jobs, hopefully, is to better prepare staff for this happening so that they're able to take action that will keep them safer. So now, Mary, let's talk about if I'm the one putting these policies together, if I'm the one writing a protocol for breach, what should be in there? How do I help people walk through this? So I think you first want to consider how you would like to set up the framework for your protocol. So are you going to set this up where you're going to break it down by the PPE item where you're breaking it down by breach to gloves, breach to gowns, to your respiratory protection, et cetera. Or you could also consider framing this in the type of breach or type of exposure that the healthcare personnel is experiencing. So do they have, you know, a splashed intact skin or non-intact skin? Do they have an exposure to their mucous membranes or do they have a puncture wound that they need to address. So first, I think setting up that framework is a good place to start. And then I think you really want to bucket this into some, some general concepts. So you want to include what type of assessment are you expecting your healthcare workers to do when a breach has been identified? So some items you might want to include here would be, where is the breach? Where did it occur? Can you see the breach? 
Is this something that you can't see because it's on your shoulder or on your back? You might want to consider, is there somebody else in the room with you that could help examine where the breach happened? You might want to consider adding an assessment of contamination, right? Is there blood or body fluids on this breach or where the breach has occurred? And then I think you'd want to move on to your mitigation steps and you'd want to outline these for your healthcare personnel so that they know after they've assessed where the breach has happened, is there contamination? Do they have an injury? What do they need to do next? So do you want to instruct them to do any sort of cleaning or removal of the bio burden? Do you want them to assess if they can replace this item of PPE in the patient's room? Or do they need to, you know, proceed to the DAFA area and then give them the steps in order to be able to do that? And then thinking through the end, you know, is this a breach that might require the staff member to shower as well is an important point to consider and where your breach shower is going to be located in all of this. So I really think it's important that you consider your framework, you have your assessment piece, you have your mitigation steps, and really bucket them into big concepts because it's not likely you're going to be able to, you know, include every single type of scenario, but you want to give people guidance, but allow them time to critically think in real time when these breaches occur. And also, I think it's important that we're keeping instructions simple for people, right? We don't want to make these things too complicated to manage, but I I think clear, simple instructions obviously work best. And then there are certain situations that we're not going to be able to practice. We might not be able to practice every single type of breach, but as people have spoke to encouraging people to use their critical thinking and thinking about where did this breach occur? What's my highest points of contamination? And empowering them to be able to manage these breaches when and if they do occur. Excellent. Yes, you certainly can go down a rabbit hole so many times. Well, what if this and what if that or what if I'm doing that? So I agree. I love that idea of of really covering concepts and knowing that each situation is going to be a little different. And sometimes our PPE is a little different. So some people may have a little bit different protocols just based on the PPE or maybe their physical space. So I think that's also something to take into consideration. We all have biocontainment units, and they're, but they're all different in, the, in concept a little bit, and they're all different in how they lay out. And some of our PPE ensembles are a little different. So I think taking that home to people, maybe just at a general bedside, not necessarily in a biocontainment unit, but looking at all of those factors when you develop your policies. Yeah, excellent point. Mary, I like what you said about keeping the process simple. I think that's important in determining if you're creating a protocol for biocontainment unit versus routine patient care practices like wiping, and, you know, gelling on top of gloves are, are probably not things you want to get into for routine practice. There's so many nuances for that. And I think keeping it simple for the general staff is is key. And those more advanced practices, you know, really need more attention to detail and more training on to really execute those appropriately. So I, I definitely agree. Keeping it simple, I think, is, is the way to go. Great. Well, We are here today because all the folks on this podcast are actually part of NeTech's PPE working group. And this working group has put together some PPE breach education, really designed to just help you explore what might need to be in a PPE breach protocol and also helping staff members think through ahead of time how they might 
handle a breach of whatever PPE article they happen to be wearing in their situation and, and how they might, you know, just start to frame their thinking. So we will have the link to that PPE breach education available in the notes of this podcast. And I don't want to miss this opportunity. Thank you guys again for putting that together. I think it was really helpful for me to think through all those different scenarios and, and how different places and facilities approach this a little differently. And again, as Brooke just said, some of that might depend on your infrastructure or your PPE ensemble. Whether you do have a trained observer, whether you do have stuff, as we said, sort of resources in your room, or whether there are some situations that are just enough of a risk that you need to proceed immediately with doffing. And it was really good to kind of think through that for myself. So thank you guys for, for putting that PPE breach education together. And, and I'm glad that it's out there for people to, to get a hold of now. All right. Well, we've talked a lot about PPE breaches and we didn't even touch the surface of all the different kinds of PPE that can have a breach, right? I mean, there's aprons to shoe covers and all kinds of pieces that we might end up adding to a complex ensemble. You know, what to do if your face shield comes off or your mask uh, has a leak. Those are all things that you want folks to start thinking about, but are really too many things to, to cover in one podcast. Yeah, that's a, it's a big subject. I think anytime you get on the subject of PPE, it's a big subject. I'm happy with that because <laughs> nothing makes me happier than talking about PPE. All right. Well, I'm going to give you guys a chance just to get in a last few thoughts. Brooke, I'm going to just start with you and, and just, is there anything else you want to convey to folks about PPE breaches, about keeping staff safe, or about making a breach policy or protocol that's, that you feel like are really important to get across? I think my biggest takeaway that I'd like people to think about is just in the moment that you realize you have a breach, don't panic. Just stop and think about what what are your potentials, what are your risks, do your risk assessment, and then think through your mitigations. And that doesn't mean you're taking five minutes to think about that. I know we're all busy, but I do think if you just stop and take that extra two to three seconds just to really assess your situation and then move forward. If you have a trained observer, engage them. If you don't, just stop and think about the process. We're all healthcare professionals. We have really good critical thinking skills. So we just need to use them so that we can keep ourselves and each other safe. I love that. Like, I would just like to wrap all that up. And I immediately thought of that, that, um, that don't panic meme. So thank you for that. I think that's a great, a, a great phrase to use. Jen, what do you think? I think that... Going back to that trained observer role, if you're utilizing that, really, I think, use it to full potential, right? That person is not just there to just, you know, eyes on you. But I think that communication with that person is really key. And so if you're able to communicate with them from, you know, inside and outside the room and you can go back and forth, great. If not, you know, talking to the trained observer before you go in here, this is what I'm going to do. This is my plan. These are, you know, the things I'm concerned about so that the trained observer can really anticipate what's about to happen and kind of have an idea of what to look for. And you're going to need a trained observer who's not going to be afraid to speak up, right? You know, someone, you don't want someone who's just going to read instructions off of the page. You want someone who's also very experienced and feels comfortable in intervening and, you know, bringing a potential problem to your attention. 
Excellent. Yeah. And I think, you know, making sure that you're, if you're the staff member, that your trained observer can see those important things, right? Maybe you want to change the angle of your bed so that your back isn't to your trained observer, right? So they can see in case that patient reaches up and grabs you or that you lean over and touch something inadvertently. Making sure that they've got good vision on you, I think is, is great advice. Thanks for that, Jen. All right, Mary Fahey. So I, I'd first like to say I agree with everything that you guys have said so far. They're really important points to emphasize. To, to add to that, I think that the importance of preparing ahead of time when we're developing these policies to think through these scenarios, have the risk assessment and mitigation steps thought through ahead of time so that we can give our healthcare professionals that we're working with and training and educating opportunities to think about this before they go into practice. Because there's absolutely going to be those times where they need to critically think in in real time. But I think the the most that we can do to help them prepare ahead of time and think about these things ahead of time, the better. Excellent. All right, Adam, wrap us up here. Yeah, I think the foundational principles um, that we talked about earlier are also really important because as you know, you go through drills and you practice different types of breaches and PPE. You can go down a lot of different scenarios, but if you have that foundational principle of how to use risk uh, assessment, how to uh, decrease the bio burden, um, how not to contaminate other services are all going to lead you to a safer uh, way of getting out of your PPE or um, addressing any issues you have with your feet. Excellent. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much. I am so grateful to have all of you here. I'm so grateful to know all of you actually as well. I want to just say for those li of you listening at home, uh, thank you to Brooke Henriksen from Spokane, Washington, Jen Kuzalina from Los Angeles, California, Adam Sorensen from Denver, Colorado, and Mary Fahey from Boston. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for your leadership and your foresight in your biocontainment units and for joining me today so we can talk about breaches and PPE. If you have questions about this episode, please contact us. Thank you for tuning in. Really hope that you'll join us for future episodes here on Transmission Interrupted on a wide range of topics from healthcare worker safety to personal protective equipment, uh, more about infectious diseases of all kinds. And if you have any questions, ideas for future shows, please feel free to contact us at info at Don't forget to visit us on the web at netech.org backslash podcast, where you can subscribe to future episodes and find more about today's topic. You'll also find the link to the Breaches PPE education put together by this fine group of human beings on the web at netech.org and in the show notes from today's podcast. Thank you again. We'll see you next time on Transmission Interrupted. You've been listening to Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from Netech, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Learn more at netech.org.